All right, here's what we're going to do. Um, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Revelation, and that's where we're going to be heading this morning, the book of Revelation. Uh, we started uh, the series a few weeks ago, the book of Revelation, and uh, today we're going to be picking up it around chapter 2. What I want to say before we even jump into it, uh, we're going to pray just before we get into it, but what I want to say with regard to this particular uh, chapter that we're going to be looking at is it has to do with suffering. Jesus was writing to a church in a city called Smyrna, and they're going through intense suffering. People are literally dying. They're literally paying the ultimate price for following Christ. And so what I want to say to you is uh, really today is about suffering. It's about how to suffer well, how to arm yourself and equip yourself for when suffering does happen and when it does take place in your life. And trust me, it will. It will. It may not be with the same intensity as those in Smyrna suffered, but we will have various forms, uh, varying degrees of suffering throughout our lives, and I want to make sure that you guys are equipped for that day, should you be experiencing it now, or for that day, should you experience it tomorrow or years to follow. So, that's what we're going to be looking at here this morning, as we make our way through this little chapter in chapter 2, this little section in chapter 2. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in and get going. Father, we ask you right now that as we read through this, that you would help us just to see you, Jesus, in a bigger way, that we would recognize your presence in our lives, that we would recognize your power over sin, and the fact that one day, Jesus, you will ultimately execute judgment over all sin and all consequences of sin and all effects of sin. But until that day comes, until that day happens, Lord, we find ourselves between a tension of great pain and suffering, and death, and hope, and glory, and grace, and being sustained by you. So God, I pray that you'd help us to live between those two tensions well, looking to Jesus. We ask that you would help us today as we look at your word, to let your word begin to speak to us, transform us, change us. God, we look to you and we ask for not just mere, more information, but we pray for transformation uh, through the revelation that we get from your word. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So, I want to begin by reading chapter 2, beginning at about verse 8. We're going to read down to verse 11, and then we'll get to work. It says this. And to the angel in the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died, who came to life. I know your tribulation, your poverty, that you're rich. And the slander that they say that, you are, that they are Jews and they're actually of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison and you'll be tested for 10 days and you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the one who conquers uh, will not be hurt by the second death. Uh, Jesus writes to this church in this city called Smyrna. Now I'm going to show you guys this map again I showed you last week, but the arrow shifted from Ephesus, about 35 miles north, to the city called Smyrna. Uh, as you see the large arrow there, that's modern day Turkey. Uh, the actual city that is actually still in existence today in Smyrna uh, is not called Smyrna anymore, it's the modern day city called Ismar. And uh, it still is in existence today, the ruins are just outside of the city, but it's still a thriving, functioning city that's on a you know, very active uh, commercial seaport. Uh, that's a nice area right there. Very beautiful place to go visit. A lot of uh, tourism that goes on there. 
But in this particular city, this is where this letter is basically being directed. Jesus is writing this letter to the group of believers, Christians that are there in the city uh, through the pen of the Apostle John. John is going to ultimately send it out. And again, as we looked at last week, it's going to somehow be you know, carried by some sort of delivery person. They're going to first go to Ephesus, then Smyrna. The next stop is Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. And this sort of composes kind of the uh, postal route of what we call the seven churches. Uh, this sort of composes this little section in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, what we typically call the letters to the seven churches. Why? Because Jesus writes seven letters, just as you would guess, to seven living, real, active churches that were actually functioning, happening during the day. Now what you will find is that most of these letters that were written have something good to say about the churches. Some of the letters have something bad to say. But what you'll find with the church there in Smyrna is that there's nothing bad to say about this church. In fact, Jesus just merely commends them. He says, you guys are doing good. Hold tight. Be strong. Uh, Keep looking to me. There's really nothing bad that he says about this group of believers that are living in this particular city of Smyrna. So I want to take a look at the next slide and what you'll see here, some of the actual pictures of the city itself. And as uh, you'll see this, kind of this little darker substance, kind of in the very middle to the upper uh, portion of the, of the uh, slide right there. If you're trying to figure out what that is, it's not dirt. It just looks like dirt because the contrast on this machine is not that great. But it's actually uh, myrrh. And the reason why there's myrrh on there is because this was a major item that was exported and imported into that particular city. In fact... It's significant because the name Smyrna actually has the name myrrh in it. In fact, if you take the same word Smyrna or myrrh and put that into the Hebrew language, you get the word mara. The word mara literally means in Hebrew bitterness, which is an an interesting irony in this because if you recall, when Jesus was born, there are three wise men from the east that came, or three, I, should, I have no idea how many wise men. Here I am reverting to tradition. We have absolutely no idea how many wise men there were. We just think there's three because there are three gifts. You guys remember what those gifts were? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, the, the myrrh that was brought was very significant, very important. Myrrh was a very important item in the ancient world. It was used sometimes for perfume. It was used as also a healing agent. If what you see right here in this upper portion of the picture, what myrrh is, it's, it's an actual sap. It comes from a tree or various type of bush. And what they end up doing with this stuff is it hardens, it kind of crystallizes. So if you look at it, it looks hard. But if you were to crush it or smash it, in the middle of this, you might kind of find a nice chewy center. All right? And inside of that gooey, chewy type center is this fragrant aroma that's produced by myrrh. You don't smell it when it's hardened, but you end up smelling it when it's crushed. When it's crushed, you get this fragrant aroma of myrrh. And it's interesting because they would use myrrh in first century burial type practices. Uh, Most certainly, when Lazarus died or when Jesus died, they would have taken him and put kind of like the shroud or cloth over him. I don't know if it was the actual like shroud of turn or not, but uh, they would put this cloth over Jesus, kind of cover his body, then they would put myrrh over the body of a dead person. The sap, literally the sap. Then they would put another cloth over that person, and then another layer of this sap. And it was a preservative. So you can imagine, you know, when uh, the, the, the amount of pounds, uh, the weight of spices and uh, herbs that were put on dead people, uh, when Jesus rose again from the dead, obviously... That was, that was no small feat, but he's God, so he 
didn't have a big problem with it. So myrrh was an important item in that, in that world. And it was something that the city was known for, and it's also found in the name. This other picture that you're going to see right there, these columns, actually form what was called the, um, the Agora. Now, what's significant about this is the Agora was also what we would know as like the marketplace. Um, you might think in your mind like this big, massive downtown uh, farmer's market. That's the way like uh, the Agora would be set up like. So I want you to think of it this way. On this, see this line right here kind of going in the center of you can't see it. But then there's another line kind of from the top of the key of the basketball court. It, they, these roads weren't very wide. Reason for that is because they didn't have Hummers back then. They just had chariots. If you were rich and wealthy and had a chariot, and these weren't, weren't really that wide. So the streets weren't that big. But on one side, you'd have these big, massive columns, just like you'd see there. And on the other side, you'd have these also kind of a mirror image of those columns. And sometimes these streets would run for like a half a mile. So imagine walking into town, into the city, and it was massive hustle and bustle. You'd smell all sorts of spices and incense and fragrances and tri-tip being cooked. And, you know, people be, you know, offering these little crazy sacrifices and all sorts of stuff going, B.O. I mean, people didn't, you know, it was Europe, you know what I'm saying? They didn't take showers. And you would smell all sorts of horrible smells. And, but it was in the Agora that stuff happened. It, this was where culture was shaped and changed and stuff happened. People would be playing music. All sorts of stuff was going on. And it was in the Agora that literally life would take place. If you owned a business, you'd sell down in the Agora. If you had goods to sell, you'd sell them down in the Agora. If you bought stuff, you'd go down to the Agora. And then you would buy, sell, do transaction, you'd do your banking. All that stuff would be done down there. What I want you to notice with regard to that is the early church that was there in Smyrna. What was happening as they were growing, as the church was sort of expanding, and their influence was sort of becoming sort of preeminent within the city, a lot of the Christians that were there in the early church in Smyrna, they owned businesses. Um, They, you know, raised cattle. They grew crops. They you know, made garments, they knitted for a living, or made wool sweaters, or whatever the types of stuff were, and they would go down here and they'd sell it. But what began to happen in the city of Smyrna, around this time in which John was writing, during the reign of this guy Domitian, was this city became the foremost city to sort of initiate, or to begin, kind of as a launch type of a trial form these, what we would call the emperor worship. This is where it all started. The emperor worship, where they would begin to actually recognize the emperor of Rome as the king of kings and the lord of lords. It was in the city of Smyrna that people would not only begin to commit or communicate or admit that uh, Caesar was lord, but they would also offer burnt offerings or incense upon an altar to demonstrate their commitment to Caesar as a deification of God, a reality of God, or a manifestation of God. In fact, they would actually have these terms used for Caesar. They would call, when Caesar would come, they would call it an epiphanius, or epiphany. In other words, an appearance of Caesar. So you'd imagine a lot of the language that we may use in Christian terminology was also sort of adopted or used in early first century culture and attributed to the pagan Uh, to the pagan deities, but also in this particular time to the Roman uh, Caesars and the leaders of the day. So what was happening 
is that for you to buy or sell in the Agora, you would also have to recognize and confess that Caesar is Lord. You have to recognize, admit to the fact that he is deity. He is the uh, manifestation of God on planet Earth. He is the guide who we bend our knee to. And the way that you would demonstrate that is that you would also burn incense to that. So if you were just some regular pagan deity or pagan guy that worshipped, say, Zeus or Poseidon, or you would venture down to Ephesus and worship Diana, you'd have no problem whatsoever admitting Caesar's Lord too. Because you were in a pantheistic type of a society and community, and no big deal. You just add one extra God to your list. No big deal. It's not going to you know, offend uh, Diana. It's not going to offend Zeus because it's just like, ah, heck. In fact, you had this mentality of like, the more gods, the better. The more people looking out after me. That was the mentality, right? So it's like, I'll take as many gods as I can get. I need them, all right? Live kind of a risky life. I'll take Caesar too. And that was the mentality. But here's the problem. Here's the rub. Christians that were following Christ, that were committed to Christ, viewed Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And in their minds, as they began to understand this, they began to realize that there is no other king, no other Lord, no other God before, before beside Jesus. And that was it. And for them to actually confess and profess Caesar as Lord would be a violation of their conscience and would actually be blasphemy in their own heart. They couldn't do it. They couldn't burn incense to any other God. They'd be equivalent to turning their backs on God. So what you have now is a dilemma. So here you sell goats for a living. You go down to the Agora to sell your nice fine goats to somebody else who wants to buy them so they can make a sweater. You do a little barter deal. They give you a sweater for your goat and whatnot. You barter, you do your little deal. But as you do it, there's also this guy kind of there at the entrance of the Agora or at the exit of the Agora that's collecting taxes. And just as you leave or just as you enter, he would say, okay, you swear your allegiance to Caesar. Guy in front of you is like, yeah, of course. And then it's your turn. He's like, you swear your allegiance to Caesar. And not only that, offer the incense upon the altar. You're like, I can't. There is no other Lord before Caesar. It's just Jesus. I can't burn incense to any other God. Because I'm, I love Jesus. Jesus gave his life for me. I can't give my life to any other God. And what would happen is you would not only be not allowed to sell anymore, you have axes broken off. I mean, you can't just go home and throw this stuff up on eBay or any other types of city. You would be marked. You would be viewed as sort of a rebel to the culture, to the system. No matter how defiled, no matter how bankrupt or messed up it was, you would basically begin to be marked as a person that was a rebel. The next step between being a rebel is just being a rioter. You are somebody who creates riots in that city. You don't want to be recognized as that. So what was happening or transpiring in the early church there in Smyrna is these Christians were making a stand. They're saying we cannot worship Caesar as Lord. And they were being persecuted. They were engaging in all sorts of various forms of suffering and torment and torture. Pastors were being dragged off and stoned to death. One, one of the guys that we'll look at in a little bit here is a guy by the name of Polycarp. Uh, one of the first early Christians outside of the Bible to have the most amount of information written about his martyrdom. He was actually a pastor in the city of Smyrna. So that's what's going on here. Jesus is writing a letter to a church that's experiencing great hardship, suffering, difficulty, trial. And he does so 
Because he's really a loving God. He's a God that's aware of the difficulties of his beloved children. That's what he's doing. That's what's happening. So we're going to basically, basically begin to look at some of the aspects of this suffering and how Jesus addresses it. And one of the most important and significant things that we're going to basically notice about this is Jesus wants them to know at least three things, or he wants them to see at least, I'm sorry, not three, but four things that actually will give them strength and help to sustain them for the things that they're about to suffer. Now here's the deal. For me as a pastor, I look at a lot of you, some of you guys I know have gone through gnarly stuff in your past, some of you are going through gnarly stuff in the present, but the reality is, is most of us would look at our lives and be like, oh my life's fine. But the reality is, is that someday your life will be struck. It'll be through a phone call, something gnarly happened to a family member, it'll be through a doctor's appointment. It'll be through, you know, a teacher telling you that you're, you're, you're gone. You're being kicked out of Cal Poly. It's over for you. The end of the road. Your life will crumble. Things will fall apart. You will engage suffering. The reality is, is because we live in a fallen, broken world riddled with sin. And wherever you have a world that's riddled with sin, you're also going to have brokenness. You're going to have death. You're going to have sickness, illness, disease. All of these things, even though... We may not have encountered them today. We will encounter them at some point. So what I want to try to do for you guys is kind of what Jesus is doing for the church there in Smyrna. Is I want you guys to have a foundation to build on so that when that phone call comes, so that when that moment comes, when that difficulty strikes, that you have something to build upon more so than just simply five steps to having a good life or seven sermons on how to succeed in your finances. I want you to have a foundation that will sustain you in the difficulty. And here's the way John does this. Here's the way John does this through the message that Jesus speaks to him. So the first thing that Jesus wants him to see is he wants him to see that he is sovereign over all things, including their suffering. And what I mean by this is that Jesus is king. He's king over all things, all things, suffering included. This is really significant, very important to note. I know we live in a time and age that everybody just loves to question every type of authority you can imagine, particularly God's. And we oftentimes hear people pointing to things like 9-11 and pointing to tsunamis and fires and mass uh, murders and things of that nature and say, well, where was God in these moments? And these are difficult questions to answer. I'm not going to somehow belittle that. But what I want to try to communicate is at least present what the Bible describes with regard to this. Because there's a few errors that oftentimes people will fall into when it comes to suffering. When trial and tribulation and hardship strike us as individuals or as a nation or as a family or as a neighborhood or as a community or as a city or whatever, oftentimes our minds begin to sort of try to categorize this. And oftentimes the way that we categorize it are based upon our own particular speculation and rarely does it have anything to do with the Bible. And therein is a difficulty that begins to arise because then we begin to believe false concepts about God. Most of religion is built upon this. Religion is me living in my little world trying to figure God out. It's all speculation. Christianity is God speaking to me. God 
entering into my world, communicating to me who he is, what he is like, how he handles things like difficulty and sin and tribulation. That's what Christianity does. And so here's what happens. We either look at God and we ask questions like, God, why are you not here? God's, God's invisible. God's absent. It's sort of like this uh, 18th century type of uh, deism. This idea that God sort of wound things up. I think there's sort of a neo-deism type mentality that's arising in our world and our culture today, meaning we have a, sort of a new type of version of it, that God just sort of wound the universe up and stepped away from the universe and things just sort of happen. That he's, he's, he exists, but he's definitely stepped, set apart from the issues that are going on. And the reason why people come to that conclusion is because, no, you cannot, they, they view in a rationalistic perspective, if God knows what's going on and doesn't stop it, either it's because he's really powerful, but he's not good, meaning he has the ability to stop it, but his morality is pretty messed up. God really is not good, like oftentimes people assume. Or they would falsely lead to another conclusion that either God is good, but he's not all powerful. So he really feels, he empathizes, and he sympathizes for us in our pain, but he really doesn't have the power or the ability to do anything about it. There's a new type of idea that's also arising over the past 10 plus years that's becoming more and more popular. It's this idea called open theology or open theism in which the idea is that God really just doesn't know what's happening. He's not really aware. In fact, when, when 9-11 happens, things like that, God's just as surprised and shocked by those moments as we are. And God's learning to try to deal with those things just like we are. Again, it's another attempt to just simply try to understand God and why God does not act and move and operate in the world of suffering and pain in which we find ourselves. I don't want to belittle this. It's a huge issue. In fact, I would say it's probably one of the number one problems that keep people at a distance or an arm's length from God in the world today. It's because we live in a world of suffering. Suffering's always been around, but more so with the internet, cable television, satellite TV, all of these things, we're able to get a bird's eye view of this stuff like never before, meaning we are always being bombarded by it, more so than we've ever had. In fact, in some ways, it's almost so much that we just become numb to it. So when another 42 people die in a roadside bomb in Afghanistan, we just don't even bat an eyelash over it. And we just flip the channel and go to Ellen's show. We just don't even think about this stuff anymore. It doesn't impact us. It doesn't affect us the way that it, do, it did maybe years ago. But we wrongly oftentimes conclude that maybe that's the way that we're feeling about this stuff is how God feels about it. And here's what John says. That Jesus writes through John to this church. He says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, I write, the words of the first and the last. That statement alone to this group of believers in that church would have been huge. It would have been huge. It would have been so weighty for them to just hear God, who's the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who started all things and the one who... Uh, all things will conclude in, and that means that everything in between, everything in between also belongs to him. What you have to understand, that the way the Bible describes suffering 
is that God is not powerless to stop it, and God is not morally deficient that he just sort of sits back and laughs at us in our suffering and sort of enjoys the fact that we suffer. The reality of it is that God does have power to stop it. God does have power to do what he wants to do. But the fact of the matter is is that God allows suffering. Every form, every bit of suffering that happens goes through the hand of God. What you have to look at is suffering through the lens of the cross. That the cross becomes the highest form of suffering. And what God basically says is, I'm aware of your suffering. I will subject myself to the same suffering that you go through to the point of the death on the cross. And it's as if Jesus, when he writes these words, he writes not as one who has absolutely no idea of what they're going through because he's so distant. This is not just giving them book knowledge. He's not just throwing out some sort of pithy statements. But what Jesus is saying, I'm the beginning, I'm the end. And I'm the author of every last detail in this world. Does that mean that God creates evil? It means that God has control over all things. All things. And that, guys, will sustain you when you go through suffering. What doesn't sustain us is a shaky, moralistically type, questionable God. That doesn't sustain us. What doesn't sustain us when we go through suffering are nice little pithy sermons that are just sort of cute and fun and happy and try to leave you feeling really gushy and good about yourself at the end of the day. That will not sustain you. Suffering is a part of our existence. We have to have a picture of a big God to sustain us in the midst of that. That's what John does. He's just like, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I hold all things in my hand. All things are being upheld and sustained by me. Nothing has hit you guys except it passed through me first. Then he goes on, and he basically describes three forms of suffering. And I love this, because then he says, the words of the first and the last, who died, who came to life, verse nine, he says, I know your tribulation, your poverty, that you are rich, and that those who slander you, who say that they're Jews but are not, they're of the synagogue of Satan. Here's his point. First of all, he says, I know your tribulation. The word tribulation is the Greek word thlipsis. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. Patient endurance is the word, same word, thlipsis. It can mean pressure or difficulty or hardship. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but it's also a very broad type term that's used in the New Testament. I want to give you a couple examples of this. I have the verses written up there. And uh, you can turn to them if you'd like. That'd be great. Here's what the first one is. The first Corinthians chapter 7, verse 28. It says, those who marry will have worldly troubles. Here's what I love about this, okay? What I want to give you is a picture of suffering, of tribulation, of hardship, because some of us might read this. My fear is that some of us, some of us might read this and be like, this church in Smyrna was suffering. These people are like dying for their faith. And we look at it, we're like, I'm not dying for my faith. You know, I'm not, I'm not watching my my grandfather, my pastor, get hauled off to prison and killed in the middle of town. I'm not in the middle of a mob rule type scenario. 
so maybe, maybe this doesn't apply to me, but what I want you to see is the tribulation that's used here, the word tribulation, philipsis, that's used here, also has a very broad type of sweeping concept, and I want to give you those just so that you can understand that I think what Jesus has in mind, in particular the church, the suffering that it has to do with their being martyred, but I think it also can have a very broad in term of any type of tribulation, any type of suffering. It could be bad grades, it could be a tough marriage, it could be issues with your children that aren't walking with Jesus and you want them to walk with Jesus and you feel the pain because you just want to see your family members that you love come to know Christ. It could be because you lost a job, you're not making your mortgage payments. Those are the types of tribulations that we also feel. So again, take a look at the verse, 1 Corinthians seven twenty-eight. Again, he says this, those who marry will have worldly troubles. I love this. Because like Paul's like, look, if you're single, things are cool, you can eat in and out every night. It's all right. But if you get married, if you, if you get married, one thing you have to realize, you will engage philipsis. <laughs> you will engage. You may even be married. That may even be your wife's name, tribulation. But the reality is, is it's there. So the point that I want to make is this, is that there is a tribulation in marriage. It's hard. That can be hard and difficult. Pressure and difficulty that you engage and encounter, even in marriage. Uh, take a look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 17. It says this, The former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me. So here's Paul. He's in jail. And he's in jail. He's writing this letter to this group of people called the Philippians. And he says, look, there's people outside of jail that are preaching a message trying to cause me philipsis. It's not physical. I mean, they're not like hitting Paul throwing sticks and stones at him, but what they are doing is they're talking smack about Paul. All right, they're saying bad stuff. They're slandering Paul, and Paul's like, these guys are trying so hard to cause pressure upon my soul by the things they say about me. All right, here's the last one. Jesus says in John 16, verse 33, he says, in this world, you will have tribulation, philipsis, it's gonna be tough, this world will be hard, things will be difficult. That is one of those promises that we don't really like, right? Sometimes we talk about like, oh, I need promises from God. And oftentimes we're talking about like promises of prosperity. We're like, I love those verses where Jesus says, and you will have a hundredfold, right? But the reality is we, we don't always like the promises when Jesus comes on the scene and says like, look, you guys, I love you. Life's going to be really, really hard. It's going to feel like you're married to tribulation, right? It's going to be tough. It's going to be intense, and you're going to feel like you're just going to want to give up. But he says, be a good cheer because I've overcome that. It's hard. But I'm greater than that. So I want you to see that with regard to tribulation. But the first thing I want you to notice with regard to that is here's what Jesus says. He says, I know your tribulation. So oftentimes people are tempted to just wonder, God, where are you? Do you have any clue what's going on in my life? And Jesus is like, look, I know what's going on. I know what's happening in your life, the tribulation, the hardship that you are literally steeped in. I know what's going on. And again, another temptation that we have, aside from does God even know what's happening, is oftentimes we can find ourselves just questioning these things. And Jesus comes and says, I know what you're going through. I'm aware of it. And then he goes on and says, I know your tribulation. And he says, in your poverty, your poverty, this word can literally mean being destitute or reduced to kind of becoming a beggar. A 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 8 verse 1 says this, 
We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, the word poverty that's, is the word that's used here, has overflowed into wealth and generosity on their behalf. And they gave their means, or out of their, not just from their means, but beyond their means uh, of their own accord. So here's what, Paul do, what Paul's doing. He's writing to this group of believers, and he's basically bragging about this church that he came across in this area. And he's like, look, I went to these guys, and these guys are going through gnarly stuff. They don't have anything. They're super poor. They've got no money. They're probably facing maybe similar types of encounters that the people that were facing in Smyrna. Remember that this type of um, emperor worship was beginning to sort of generate, or at least maybe not in a full fruition the way it did in 90 AD, but it was sort of viewed as a, as a hardcore nationalism. And so what was happening all around the world, Christians were starting to suffer. And so Paul goes to these guys, and he's like, these guys have nothing. But one of the things that I want to commend them for, and I want to tell you guys about these people, is that even though, even though they're suffering, even though financially they've been struck, they've lost their houses, they've lost their dog, everything's horrible, they love country music, their life is just horrible. These guys, this group of believers, love Jesus and love you so much, even though they've never seen you, they were so generous. With their, with their goods and their money. They just gave joyfully. In the next verse, take a look at this. Paul goes on later on in the chapter, uh, just a few verses later. He says, For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, may become rich. So here's what Paul's saying, is that these believers here in Macedonia, super poor, don't have anything, but they give generously because they love Jesus, and they love you even though they've never seen you. If you're the type of person that just holds on to your goods and you're, you're always making excuses why you can't give, you know what's really happening is that you are, you're keeping yourself outside of a joyful life and a life that looks a lot like Jesus. So Paul goes on to say, he says, listen, these guys actually remind me of Jesus. Jesus, who even though he was rich, became poor. And in his poverty... Jesus went from having a massive home in heaven with angels, servants, worshiping him, praising him day and night for all eternity to leaving that behind, living in a tiny little trashy town, being a homeless guy, never signing a book deal, always being made fun of, always having to figure out where he's going to find food. Sometimes, yes, God allows him to create something that everybody eats. It's a great time. It's like a buffet. and Everybody's happy. But other times, Jesus is mocked. He's put down, always misunderstood. But you have to understand, he willingly took that. Jesus became poor, even though he was rich, so that we, who are impoverished, can become rich with God. So that we could know the riches and the grace and the goodness of God. So what Paul's basically saying, man, there are people that are really poor and they live just like Jesus because they are always giving out, giving regularly, giving joyfully. And that's what Jesus says to this group of people. He says, you guys are poor, but in reality you're rich. He says this in a sort of little parenthetical statement. A lot of poverty, a lot of hurt, a lot of difficulty. The third thing that he says he says, and I know the tribulation, your poverty, and the slander of those who say that they're Jews, but they're not. They're out of the synagogue of Satan. So he says, these guys are making fun of you. They're talking bad about you. They're saying things that are just simply not true. 
They're blaspheming is what the actual Greek word that's used there. They're blaspheming. They're speaking against your name and against who you are. But it's interesting because he goes on to say, he says, these people look like Jews, but they're actually the synagogue of Satan. So this gives us a little bit of an insight as to who this group of people were that were causing all sorts of pressure for the Jewish or for the Christian people that had come to know Christ. Probably this was the Jewish community in the city of Smyrna. And we're actually told based upon a lot of early excavation that the early Jewish community in Smyrna actually engaged the worship of Caesar. They really didn't have anything to lose. And this was sort of their trade-off. They thought, you know what? Let's gain right and privilege and respect and honor from Caesar. And so therefore, what you have to understand is that by these guys trading what they had to give honor and res- or to get honor and respect from Caesar, they lost honor and respect from God. What you have to hear is in this world, we will either live in such a way where we are concerned about what the opinions are of everybody else, so therefore we will act towards them, we'll spend money that we don't have to buy things that we don't need to please people that we really don't even like, just so that at the end of the day, people can say, huh, he's a really cool guy, or she's really nice, or look at the car they drive, or look at the house they have, or look at the goods they possess, or look at the job they have, or look at whatever. And the reality is, is that we are either living in such a way that we are perpetually aiming to get the applause and the respect and the honor of the world system around us, or the honor and the respect of God. And he says, you guys have sought to live in such a way to get the honor and respect of God so much so that you refuse to bend your knee to Caesar, even if that meant losing your life. And they slander you for it. But Jesus says, I know what you're going through. I see it. I'm with you. I'm watching what's happening. The next thing that Jesus wants them to see in this letter, first of all, he wants them to see that he's sovereign over all things, including the suffering. The second thing he wants them to see is that he actually suffers with us. Verse 8, he says this. He says, he died. Jesus referring to himself, kind of third person. He says, he died and he rose again. He rose to life. What's really significant about this little phrase is I think what he wants this church in Smyrna who's going through suffering to understand is that they're not suffering alone. They're not suffering alone. I think, again, one of the traps that we oftentimes can fall into, especially when we go through gnarly stuff, is we not only begin to question, you know, where's God, but we also oftentimes feel very lonely. We feel like nobody else knows what we're going through. We feel isolated. That's why one of the reasons why sometimes people, when they suffer, they pull away from groups of people. They don't want to talk about what's happening. They sort of isolate themselves. I want to suggest to you, that's one of the worst things that you can do. I mean, if you're pulling away to go hang out with Jesus, that's great. That's the best thing for you to do. But if you're just kind of pulling away because you're like frustrated with everybody, you're like nobody knows what's going on, you got a chip on your shoulder, you got an axe to grind, I just want to suggest to you that is the enemy's subtle way of removing you like a very, very weak type of animal in a flock just simply to be prey. It's what I want you to get a picture in your mind. Don't isolate yourself. Don't remove yourself if you're going through suffering and tribulation. What you need to know is exactly what Jesus says here. He says, I I died, but I rose again. I think Jesus' words to them that are suffering and feeling this philipsis, 
this blasphemy, the slander against their name, and the poverty that they're sort of experiencing, his purpose in saying this is to be like, look, I've been there. I know what you're going through. I became poor and suffered just like you. And the story of the Bible, the story, the narrative that God wants to speak into our lives is that we don't have a God that distances himself, that keeps at arm's length and just sort of shouts commands into us and just sort of tells us what to live and throws out nice little statements whereby we can throw down on coffee mugs and plaster on t-shirts and put on bumper stickers and somehow be like, you know, I love Jesus and Thomas Kincaid. You know, God's good, right? I'm a Christian. And what ends up happening is we just turn Jesus and Christianity into like this nice little pithy Christian statement, little declarations, little creeds. Sermons become nothing more than like these little five-point statements, declarations of why we're all happy. And the reality is life is tough. There are moments that it will feel like pressure. And you have to have a theology that will sustain you in those difficult moments of crushing. And one of the greatest things to rise out of the gray sky is to just hear those words of Jesus, I died. I died. I suffered. I was tortured. I was betrayed. I felt the pressure. I was impoverished. I was blasphemed. I was slandered. I know what it's like. I was there. But his promise is I didn't just die, but I came to life. And it's from this statement, from this statement out of the mouth of Jesus, that a whole host of theological concepts that just sort of bloom from the mind of the Apostle Paul. I'll give you a couple examples of them. Here's what Paul would later go on to write. He'd say something like this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Because he's able to understand that Jesus suffered. I suffer. Jesus was glorified. So will I be glorified? Peter if you're suffering right now, I encourage you, read through 1 Peter chapter 4. The whole chapter. It's awesome. It's, it's, an, it's, an, it's one of those chapters that everybody who's going through crazy stuff, you just have to take some time today, sit down quietly, turn off the TV, and just listen to Jesus. Listen to what God has to say. Here's what Peter writes. He says in verse uh, 13 of chapter 4, But rejoice in so far and share in Christ's sufferings. So that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, Jesus suffered, so will you. Jesus was glorified, so will you. And what's the proper response that Peter wants us to see? Check it out again. But rejoice! You get that? This is a word that we can't just be like, mm, rejoice. Praise the Lord. I mean, this is so good. He wants us to feel it, that this is about celebration, that yes, we suffer. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it feels like pressure. Yes, we feel impoverished. Yes, but rejoice. I won't yell again. 
rejoice. Because even though you suffer just like Jesus, you will have glory just like Jesus. Isn't that good news? You're not doing this alone. Christ is with you. That's exactly what he means by saying, I died. I died. But I also rose again. The third thing he wants us to see is this. Jesus rewards us. He rewards his own. Verse 10 tells us, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you might be tested for ten days, and you will have tribulation. But be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. Okay, so notice this. It's kind of crazy when you think about this. He's like, hey, don't be afraid. It's like people are dying around you, right? Like you watch your dad get hauled off, and when you see your dad crying, you're like, dad's crying. Dad's going to get killed tonight. This stinks. You wake up in the morning, you don't know if you're going to get a chance to tuck your daughter into bed the next night. Or you're never going to say bye or say I love you to your wife again this side of heaven. You just don't know that. You wake up in the, every morning. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. And this little statement comes like, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid? How? So here's what you got to understand. What Jesus wants to do is he wants us to balance our fears on, a, on, a, on an axis that properly tilts the balance into the favor of another. Okay, here's what I mean. Fear is tangible. Have you ever felt fear? I mean, I'm talking like intense fear. Maybe you wake up in the middle of the night, you're thinking of something. Maybe, like, I got a disease or something like that. If you're maybe a hypochondriac and you think of things that maybe you can get sick from and you're paralyzed by fear. You can't move, you can't think, you can't walk. I've literally, this has happened to me before. There's times in my life, it's one of them happened with my daughter. There was something that happened with my daughter. I literally got so panic-stricken, I fainted. I, literally, I was there with my wife, and she's like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I don't know. I just can't even think. And like, I literally was so, just fear overcame me. And Jesus is like, don't, don't be afraid. So what he's saying is that you got to balance that fear with something else. And how does he do that? He goes on and he says, be faithful unto death, because even though you're going to be tempted for 10 days, I don't think this is a literal 10 days. I think he's actually hearkening back to the first chapter of the book of Daniel, where uh, these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, they were going to be tested for 10 days to see how they're going to fare in the king's court by eating, going vegetable, going uh, vegetarian for 10 days, and they didn't want to eat the king's meat. They were going to be tested. I think that's what he's hearkening back to, to be honest with you. And so what he's saying, it's kind of a, a, a metaphorical type of a number. saying, you guys are going to be tested. It's going to be tough. But don't be afraid, because at the end of this, um, you will be given a crown of life. Jesus will give you a crown of life. To the Christians in the city, that meant a lot. Smyrna was one of the main um, cities that contributed in the uh, games, in the Olympic Games way back when. So they were familiar with participation in the games. And at the end of the game, those that won would oftentimes receive a crown. The actual Greek word that's used there, that's actually used here, uh, and as well as also in the Greek games, was Stephanos. It literally means a crown or a wreath. And what they would often be given once they won, you know, a marathon or high jump or whatever type of stuff they did back then, wrestling, they would be given a crown or, or a wreath, uh, laurels, some sort of, uh, you know, plant. 
And so they were very familiar with this imagery. And basically Jesus says, listen, don't be afraid. It's going to be tough. It will be hard. I promise you that. It will feel like even more pressure than you've ever even imagined. But balance your fears. Let something else pull or tug at or sustain or hold up or be a foundation under your fears. Something that can outbalance them. And he says, here's what it is. Know that at the end of all this, as you hit the wall, as you die, I will give you a crown, not of laurels, but of life. I will give you a crown of life. Take a look at a couple other verses that I think are absolutely beautiful that support this whole idea. The next slide, you'll see this. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Paul says this again. I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul's whole point is that, listen, it's hard. Life is difficult. There are sufferings. There's pain. There's tribulation that I find myself engaged in. But Paul was able to balance that. Paul's exact, doing exactly what I think Jesus is urging him to do. He's saying you have to have something that you hang your fears on. Something that's actually capable of hanging your fears on. Do you understand what I'm saying? Many of us, we hang our fears on whatever idol is most convenient. That's why we drink. That's why we get drunk. That's why we do the stuff we do. That's why drugs are so popular today. That's why sometimes people engage in sort of illicit relationships or guys work so hard because they're just really afraid and they feel like unless I work even harder this thing's going to go down everything's going to sink because you're afraid you're trying to hang your fears upon your own endeavors of working hard here's what Jesus is saying hang your fears upon a hook that will actually uphold everything he says I'm going to give you a crown of life trust in me look to me because I suffered I died just like you are about to. But at the end of it, I'm gonna give you a crown of life. I will give you that crown. I want you to think of that day. I want you to think of that day, especially those of you that are suffering today, especially those of you that feel the turmoil, feel the tribulation in your heart. I want you to think of that day, that one day at the end, You will bow down before Jesus. You will see Jesus. I promise you that you will see Jesus. And Jesus will lift you up. He will wipe your tears from your eyes, just like he says at the end. And he will place a crown of honor and life and joy, and as Paul would say, of righteousness upon your head, as if to say, good job. Enter into my joy. Let's celebrate. You made it. I love you. I want you to feel that and sense that the best life is one day to come when Jesus gives us that crown. James says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive a crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Again, the same idea. The last thing that Jesus wants us to see is this is not only does he want us to understand, to see the fact that he's sovereign over all of our suffering, to that Jesus suffers with us, he's not just outside of it all, pointing to us, giving us direction, but he actually suffers with us. The third thing, that Jesus actually offers reward to those who are in the midst of hardship. The fourth and final thing is Jesus 
wants them to understand that I will rescue you from the second death. This is a very interesting verse that Jesus tags on here, sort of kind of in this epilogue of the rest of this little segment here to this, this little letter to this group of suffering Christians. Here's what he says. And he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers will not only be hurt by the second death. Just a little statement there. What I want you to know is this. In Christianity today, nobody likes to talk about death, hell, judgment, the judgment that's to come. It's just not popular. In fact, if you want to talk about church suicide, start talking about death, suffering, and hell. Your church will shrink. But to be really honest with you, at the end of the day, because I love you guys, because some of you, the reality is, perhaps you are heading there, and I don't want to see you go there. And at the end of the day, underneath all of it, I'm accountable to God. I don't want anybody's blood in this church on my hands. I have to be able to faithfully, clearly communicate everything that Jesus says, the good things, great things, great promises, but also the things that are a little bit tough to talk about. This is one of them. Nobody likes to talk about hell. And that's exactly what Jesus does. And he does so in a way of a promise. He says, those of you who overcome, you won't partake in the second death. What's the second death? I want to give you a quick little picture and overview of this. Jesus actually describes hell or this place of eternal torment, which I'm going to try to get my terminology correct so that you get your terminology correct. He says it will be one day like a place where the fires never die. It's so intense. He says there was a place on the outskirts of the wall of Jerusalem called Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom. It was a place where all the trash and rubbish and garbage would be burned. Sometimes the people died and they were criminals and nobody wanted to give them a decent burial. They just chucked their body over the wall and little animals and coyotes would come and eat them and bones would be scattered all over the place and they had fires burning all the time. There was always this horrific stench, the smell of burning just trash and garbage and feces and dung. It was a horrible place. Obviously you can imagine it was very, very cheap real estate. If you wanted a first beginning house, that would be the best place to buy it because the property is cheap. But it was a place that nobody wanted to go to. It was horrific. And it was in this particular place Jesus talks about, he says, one day this is what it will be like. It will be like Gehenna. So the Bible talks about a place when you die now that's called hell or Hades. Those two terms are synonymous in the New Testament. So what you need to know is hell is not eternal. Hell, Hades, it's not everlasting. The lake of fire is everlasting. I want to make sure you get your terms correct. Hell is a place where those who die today, awaiting the last judgment, they will go to this temporary spot called hell. It is a place of suffering, temporary, have no idea what that means, what that looks like. I just know it's a place I don't ever want to go to. It's a place that's bad. And it's a place that Jesus says one day in Revelation chapter 20. Why don't you turn there real quick and we'll wrap this whole thing up. Revelation chapter 20 verse 6. Jesus says this to the believers. He says this is the first resurrection. So there's going to come a day when everybody who's died will be resurrected. Christians, people who love Jesus will be resurrected to life. They will be given a new body that will live on a new earth that will be amazing. Amazing food, we'll get to hang out with a lot of people that we've always loved, that we haven't got a chance to hang out with. I'm going to be kicking it with Spurgeon, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be a wonderful time. But Jesus goes on to say, and he says, blessed and holy is the one 
who shares in the first resurrection. Very happy. It's a great place to be. He says, over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And then he goes on at the end of the chapter, in verse 14, and he says, there will come a day that at the end of all things, no idea when this is going to happen, those people that whip out charts and tell you everything, honestly, I think a lot of those guys are... (laughs) So the point that I want to make is this. We don't know when this stuff's going to happen. We really don't. But what we do know is that it will happen. And Jesus says, there will come a day when death and Hades will be thrown in the lake of fire. And then he says, this is the second death. This is the second death. Death, that enemy that always stops every one of us in our tracks. Death, that very thing which robs us of all of the great joys that we have in this life. Death will always win in this life. But Jesus says there will come a day when death as well as hell or Hades, the place where people die, not knowing, not loving Christ, will go. And he says, there will come a day when both death and Hades will be tossed into the lake of fire. And then he goes on and he finishes and he says, and anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And the point that he's going to make is that this is a place of eternal torment it's like Gehenna. This is what Jesus is referring to. And when he's trying to give a pictorial description as to what it's like, you say, is it exactly like that? Probably not. It's probably worse. Metaphors always are. And I think the point that Jesus is very clearly trying to say to the church in Smyrna who are suffering, he's like, listen, one of the things that you also need to understand is that there will come a day of reckoning. And you will be spared from the second death. You won't go there. But the reality is, guys, I hope it's not true of this congregation or anybody at our first service or anybody at our next service. But the reality is, some of you just keep living your life disregarding God, stiff-arming God, fighting against God, your Creator. And what you're really fighting against, what you're really resisting against, is not hell, but life and love. That's what God offers. That's what God gives. That's what God wants you to have, is life. And he offers it. But what happens and what will happen is that there will come a day when those who perpetually, perennially fight and push and stiff arm and keep God at an arm's length and keep persecuting and hurting and wounding those whom Jesus loves and misrepresenting the God who is, who is beautiful in his glory. He says one day there will come a point where his wrath will be kept building upon itself little bit by little bit little bit by little bit until one day everything will topple over and it will just destroy every single one of his enemies. I don't know when that day is, but you can be certain of the fact that it will come. Just as all the prophecies in the Old Testament look forward to the coming of Christ and his death on the cross, so the same promises that Jesus predicts of the future will one day come. I don't want to see any of you enter into the second death. Someone once put it this way. If you die once, or if you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, you die once. Here's what I mean. If you're born once physically, and that's it, you'll die twice. You'll die physically, 
And secondly, you will die in an eternal sense, in the lake of fire, ultimately. Those who are born twice, meaning you're born once physically, but then born again, second, spiritually, in your heart, you will only die once. Our greatest enemy will be the grave. And after that, life, a crown, Jesus, our greatest treasure. We have a lot to look forward to. But what I hope and I pray that what you do in your suffering, what you do with your suffering, is what the Smyrna believers did, was to look to Jesus, to cling to Christ, to hold on to God as being sovereign over all things, that somehow in the midst of this screwed up, messed up, jacked up, crazy world, that God is going to make it all right. When? We have no promises of when. But we do have a promise that it will. I want to finish... I'm going to have Jonathan, or, um, Mikey come on up. He's going to lead us in some worship. What I want to do is I want to finish telling you guys a little bit of a story about a guy by the name of Polycarp. And Polycarp was a guy who was actually a friend of John the Apostle. And he ended up moving to the city of Smyrna. It's kind of a small little depiction of him, a picture of him. And he was a pastor. He was 86 years old when he died. He lived uh, in around 160. So he was actually friends with uh, the Apostle John. And that means that when John wrote this, which is probably around 95, Polycarp was maybe around 15 years old, somewhere around there. When Polycarp was 86 years old, he was living just a little bit on the outskirts of the city of Smyrna. And uh, he was one of these old guys that loved Jesus, was a faithful pastor, preached to the people in his church, his congregation, taught them about Jesus, taught them about Jesus' second coming, and he just loved them. But he refused to bend his knee to Caesar. Remember, Smyrna was the center for Caesar worship. And he refused to bend his knee to to Caesar. And what happened were the guards had heard about this guy and they basically come up to his house one day and they said, Polycarp, listen, we gotta arrest you if you don't bend your knee to Caesar. If you don't proclaim Caesar as king of kings and as lord of lords, we're gonna have to arrest you. And so what Polycarp does is he invites him in. He says, why don't you guys have a meal? Can I just have one more hour to pray? They're like, whatever. So he goes out in his backyard, he prays. He comes back out and they ask him, Will you bend your knee to Caesar and proclaim as king of kings and lord of lords? And here's what Polycarp said to them right at that particular moment. He says, 86 years, I've served Christ. He's never done anything wrong to me. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? They threw him on a donkey and they carried this 86-year-old grandpa into the town of Smyrna. And they bring him into a massive theater, amphitheater in the center of town, a coliseum actually, where it was filled with all sorts of people that were just angry, a mob of people that hated him, part of the Jewish people that hated the Christians. And the crowd was going nuts and crazy, as you can imagine. And what happens is they basically having dialogue with the Roman soldier, and the Roman soldier turns to Polycarp, he says, listen, dude, I don't want to kill you. I don't want to end your life, but I have to. And he basically says, you got to understand... Um, I, I have the power to burn you at the stake. I have the power to kill you in front of all of these people. Just proclaim Caesar as king of kings and lord of lords and offer the incense. And here's what Polycarp says. He says, you threaten me with a fire which will perhaps burn for an hour. And then soon it will go out. But you are ignorant of the fire of the future judgment of God which is prepared and reserved for the everlasting punishment and torment of the ungodly. But why do you delay Bring on the beasts, the fire, or whatever you may choose. You will not, by either of them, move me to deny Christ, my Lord, and my Savior. And with that, they were about to nail 
Polycarp, this 86-year-old grandpa, to a stick. And Polycarp says, you don't need to nail me. I willfully bind my hands together. And my God, who sustained me these 86 years of my life, will keep me in the midst of these flames. And they burn him. He died that day. And it sent a wave of encouragement to the believers throughout the church. Polycarp was a faithful servant of Christ. This represents an extreme form of extreme persecution and tribulation. I don't want to minimize types of difficulties and hardships that some of you go through. But what I do want you to see is I want you to maximize Jesus. I want you to see Jesus. I don't want to belittle your things that you're going through or what you may go through. But what I do want you to see is to see God as big. I want you to see God as great, who has the authority, that has the power, that everything that has ever passed into our lives, ever is going through our lives, or ever one day will go through our lives, has always gone through first the hands of our loving God. He has the ability to set us free, to take care of us, to preserve us, or to even be with us while we die but ultimately to give us a crown as we suffer like Jesus suffered, which was well. That's what we want. We want to suffer like Jesus. We want to live like Jesus, and we want to die like Jesus because Jesus is worthy. We're going to respond to the Lord right now. Today actually represents the day of prayer for the persecuted church. Some of you might know that. Some of you might not know that. That means that worldwide churches are praying For believers, brothers and sisters around the world, I'm going to show you a map here of all around the world. I know you can't see it because it's really, really small. But what I want you to notice is that kind of in that middle belt, in that little area where like you see China and India and Sri Lanka and some of these other areas, Christians literally are suffering. Meaning that these are people, brothers and sisters like you, they've got little kids like you, they've got moms and dads, some of them are trying to get an education like you. Some of them don't have anything like you have, and their lives couldn't be any more different than your lives. But these are people that know Jesus, these are people that love Christ, and these are people that are trying to just love God with all their heart. And what they're really trying to do is the next day, the main things that they're focused on in their life is they wake up in the morning saying, I don't want to betray my God. I don't want to give in. I don't want to stop fighting. I don't want to suffer poorly. I want to suffer well for the name of Christ. These are real people that you will one day, if you're a Christian, meet with Christ around a massive table buffet and eat a meal with them. And it'll be amazing because we'll hear incredible stories about what God had taken them through. So I don't want to belittle anybody's sufferings or tribulations or hardships, but I want for us to have a bigger picture of what is going on around the world around us. What I want to do right now is I want to pray as I'm going to pray for the suffering Christians around the world. I want to pray for you guys. And then we're going to respond by giving our tithes and offerings. Hopefully, even for us in our poverty, we can give joyfully because we love Jesus. Jesus loves cheerful givers. Jesus is a cheerful giver. We're going to give joyfully to God. We're also going to sing to God because we love God. We love what God has done for us through the cross. We love Jesus. Jesus is not abstract. He is a God that is present with us in our trials. That's really good news to celebrate. I would encourage this as we worship. 
Let that affect you. Let that affect you. Be joyful. And then we're going to just worship God. And I'll dismiss you guys. So let's pray. Let's pray for the persecuted church. Pray for you guys. We'll give joyfully. We'll worship. We'll leave. Jesus, I just first of all want to pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that are going through intense things. Some of them, Lord, their pain goes deep. And it goes deep for many, many, many years. Things that they've suffered from years ago. Jesus, I thank you that they're not alone, that you're there with them. You may feel distant to some of them, but Lord, I pray that you would remind them, just like these believers in Smyrna suffered. So Jesus, you were there with them, speaking into their lives, communicating to them, sharing with them the fact that you are a big, sustaining God. Pray that you would give them a bigger picture of who you are. Lord, I also want to pray for my brothers and sisters around the world that are suffering. Their sufferings may not have to do with paying mortgages and whether or not they're going to get a job or whether or not they're going to graduate from school or whether or not their marriage is going to last into the 19th year. But Lord, their sufferings are whether or not they're going to see their wife in the morning or whether or not they're going to get a chance to kiss their daughter on the cheek before she goes to bed tomorrow. Their sufferings are an entirely different type. But they're real. And Jesus, you never belittle, you never degrade any types of our sufferings. No matter how big or how insignificant we may tend to just view them as, you feel empathy for them all. Because Jesus, you came into our world, you died, and you rose again victoriously. And so will those who love you. So Jesus, I pray right now that as we worship you, that we would look to you and cling to you and trust in you and love you like never before and just hold on to you God in the midst of suffering but even bigger picture that we would see you holding on to us even when we feel like we lose our grip so now Father we give to you our tithes, our offerings our worship, our praise if there's anybody here right now Lord that does not know you I pray that they would give to you their sin that they would confess their sinfulness to you And call upon you, Jesus, to forgive them, to wash them, to rescue them. That one day they'd have a crown of throne, the crown of life themselves. For them, that they would one day be rescued from the second death. Jesus, we have so much to celebrate. Pray that we would do that as we worship you now.